First Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment or the purpose of the charge is another way to look at that. The purpose of this charge, Timothy, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from a sincere faith from which some having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, and for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. We're going to stop there and take a look at the passage. As we studied last week, we saw in First Timothy that Timothy at this point, Paul met him when he was real young and at 18 years of age. Here, Timothy is uh, entrusted by Paul to oversee the church in Ephesus. Um, we're going to find out in the later portions of this that uh, Eunice was his grandmother and he had a long history on his mother's side of faithfulness. His father was a Gentile, his mother was a Jewess. And, um, and so we're going to also see that Paul ends up having Timothy circumcised. He actually circumcises himself. Talk about a strange relationship between uh, a, a teacher and a student. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, he, he is the epitome of, or, or he would be the, the very picture of a millennial um, in our day and age. Timothy is in that stage of, of being a millennial um, where he looks at the culture that he's surrounded by and Ephesus itself, now mind you, this is 67 AD or, uh, that, that uh, Paul is writing this. So Nero has already burned Rome in 64 AD. And uh, he's writing to Timothy in 67 AD. So for three years, Christians have been massively persecuted by Nero. Uh, they're fair game throughout the Roman Empire. And Timothy is in basically the, the metropolis of, of uh, the Roman Empire in Ephesus. And here as he's in this metropolis in Ephesus, this is the, the cultural hub, so to speak. And it, it has a huge influence on all cultural things. And Timothy's a young minister, and, and he's struggling, and he, he's struggling with vision and direction. He's a man whose father is pretty much absent in his life. And we look at our culture today, as we studied last week, that, um, you know, it's a fatherless generation. Well, that, that depicts Timothy's life. Uh, we don't hear much of his father, but we sure hear about the faith of his mother and his grandmother. Being a, uh, a young man, not having a father uh, image in his life, Timothy looks to Paul, and Paul actually in this text, he calls him his own son. He says, my true son in the faith. And the word for son in the Greek means biologically. Uh, I look at you as though you were born from, from uh, 
my bloodline, and, and I, I care for you as a father cares for a son. And that's a way to minister to the millennials. You, you in some cases, have to be a father to them or a mother to them. Uh, we have generations that just don't understand what a healthy family looks like. And for many of us, we have to take folks under our wing. And that's why I encouraged last week this idea of foster care and, and embracing folks in our, our generation to make a difference. So Paul looks at Timothy and he says to him, look, Timothy, I'm going to urge you, uh, I'm going to command you, I'm going to charge you with some very important responsibilities as you pastor the church in Ephesus. I want you to do some very important things. He says, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, verse 3, and we covered this last week, but I want to give a refresher. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, I called you to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that teach, that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy is left to con- confront false teachings in the church. And he's young, and he's going to be struggling with his youth. And Paul's going to go on to tell him, don't let him despise your youth. Stand firm. You have everything necessary. He also says in verse 4, these folks give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. The church just goes down these rabbit trails of all these different things. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. And, And these endless genealogies and these endless fables. And he says, this is not godly edification, which comes by faith. He says, the purpose of the commandment, the purpose of the charge, Timothy, the charge that I've given you in verse 5, the purpose of that charge, everything that I have have discipled you with, I've, I've asked you to stand firm in Ephesus, you're overseeing that fellowship. The purpose of this charge, this commandment I give you is number one, love, love from a pure heart, love. We see in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that if we have not love, we're a clanging cymbal or a sounding brass. We can speak with the tongue of angels, but if we have not love, we're a clanging cymbal or a sounding brass. Uh, the greatest commandment um, is to love one another as I have loved you. And you had the man come to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? He said, um, uh, all the commandments are summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament is summed up in those two comments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that's the idea. God defines himself in 1 John 4, 8. God is love. That's, that's the identifying factor. He who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. This is what Paul is charging Timothy with. This, this has to come from, from love, from a pure heart. And, and this idea that we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love our neighbors, ourselves. I've said this before. We always love to add a, add a third commandment to that that negates the, the first two. And it's endless in, in our culture today, our self-loving culture. Uh, a culture that is so enamored with itself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And then we add this third commandment. Pastor, I can't love others until I first learn how to love myself. I need to learn how to love me. Have you, anyone heard that? And it, it is such a lie. We love ourselves unbelievably. We're madly in love with ourselves. We wake up in the morning and we think of ourselves. We bathe ourselves. Some of you do. We brush our teeth. We feed ourselves. We think about ourselves. When we're in a room like this, we're thinking others are thinking about us. Nobody's thinking of you. No, I'm not even thinking. I didn't even think of you today at all. 
I'm just telling you that. My wife were here. I thought of her a little bit. Uh, but mostly the entire day was consumed with me. I was thinking of me. Yeah, family photo, you, the photo's good or bad, depending on how you look. And we love ourselves. We are madly in love with ourselves. And to say that I can't love others until I learn how to love myself, it really what it is, is it's negating the first two commandments. You can't add a third commandment more detrimental to the first two than that statement, I can't love others until I learn to love myself. The Lord says that the only place for I, which is ego, which is self-preservation, He says, I, Rob McCoy, I, the Apostle Paul, I, and you can put your name there, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. I die to myself and I'm alive to Christ. The idea is, the only thing we can bring to the the equation is die and then rely. Die to ourselves and rely on Christ. The only good thing in us is Jesus. And there's only room in our life for one Christian, and that's Jesus. And he just wants us to get out of the way. And so when... When Paul says the purpose of this charge, Timothy, is to love. First thing for a minister is to love. If you have not love, you're a clanging cymbal or sounding brass. And I have to tell you something. Love your enemies. Love those who spitefully use you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. Love people who are difficult to love. The church is a great experimental, sociological, you know, petri dish to to learn how to love the unlovable. Just look around the room and how difficult we are to love. We all have our idiosyncrasies and our demands and our needs and, and our expectations of one another and our judgments of one another. And to somewhere come to that place where you can deny yourself, pick up your cross and love someone more than you love yourself. Greater love has no man than this and to lay down his life for a friend. That you walk into a room and you say, I'm stepping in not to be served, but to serve. That's the Christian life. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all. What is a servant of all? Someone who denies themselves, picks up their cross, and follows the Lord. They don't come into a service to be served. They come to serve and, and to lay their life down. That idea that people will have questions for you and you're tired and you've had a long day. You just wait. God will give you rest. The idea is is if you have compassion, that's the call of the Lord. And he gives you that compassion. He gives you a burden for the lost as you pursue him. And so this charge that that Paul gives to Timothy, this charge is to love. Timothy, that's going to be the hardest thing in the ministry. I, I don't care how eloquent you are. I don't care how well you can rightly divide the word of truth. I don't care how much you know about eschatology. I don't care how much you know about the political spectrum. I don't care about uh, how you can exegete a text or, or your hum- hermeneutical approach or any of those things. I don't care unless you love. The first thing people are going to look for is, is do you love them? And, and the idea of love is people don't so much want to know about you. They want you to know about them. Love requires a lot of listening. We love to do a lot of talking. We love to hear ourselves talk instead of listen. You learn a lot when you listen. And here I am doing all the talking. <laughs> but he says, now the purpose of the commandment is love. And then he says, from a pure heart, a pure heart. And the purpose of the commandment, now that word purpose means telos, which is where we get the word telescope, which means this is our aim. Our aim is to love out of a pure heart. This idea of, of a, um, a good conscience, a sincere faith as he goes through all these pictures and we look at a pure heart, undefiled. This, this idea that before the Lord, our heart is pure. And I would just say right there, when, the, when Paul says to Timothy, this is the charge. This is to charge, to love out of a pure heart. 
Anyone in the room today testify to the purity of your heart? Could you raise your hand, please? I didn't think we'd get a response. The heart is deceitful above all else, isn't it? It's desperately wicked, isn't it? it, it we, we defile ourselves by our heart and the things that we deal with. So how do we have a pure heart? We die and rely. Who has a pure heart? Christ. We die that Christ might live. And that's the idea, less of us and more of him. This love is agape. The only way that we can give agape love is to receive it from the Lord. As Christ has loved you, so love one another. As Christ has forgiven you, so forgive one another. Lay down your life. The only way you can do that is to deny yourself. Uh, the, The cross is for all of us. That's the beauty of Christianity. It's the power of the cross. And so he says... This, this charge, this purpose, this aim is to love from a pure heart. And then he adds this idea from a good conscience. Isn't it interesting that our memories torture us? Our memories torture us. And when the scripture speaks of a good conscience, I wrote down a couple of quotes. I like this one by Martin Luther King Jr. He says, an individual who breaks a law, uh, an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. John Calvin said, the torture of a bad conscience is the hell of a living soul. And then you think about people who sear their conscience. And we'll go through this because the scriptures speak on a number of occasions of a good conscience. We're going to see in verse 19 that he speaks of a good conscience. Chapter 3, verse 9, a pure conscience. Chapter 4 speaks of a seared conscience. Doug Larson writes, a lot of people mistake a short memory for a clear conscience. You're just able to forget. Well, there's people that you've hurt that you haven't resolved it with, but you just tend to move on with your life and forget them. That's not a clean conscience. That is not what God is calling us to of a good conscience. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything except temptation. Uh, So we come to a place where a good conscience isn't the ability to forget things. A good conscience is knowing that you have made right in the areas that you've wronged somebody. As, a, as it's possible with you, live at peace with all men. And, and our memories and our guilt, um, they, 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 they plague us. They haunt our dreams. And I was thinking about uh, 1 John when it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the holy bar of soap of God. And it comes with a confession. The, the best way to have a good conscience is just to confess it. And then forget what is behind and strive for what is ahead. And if God, if the Holy Spirit says, go make it right with your brother, if you go to offer a sacrifice at the altar and there remember you have an issue with your brother, leave the sacrifice and go be reconciled to your brother. Go make it right. Go make it right. And, and then you never, have to, you never have to remember, if you tell the truth, you never have to remember what you said. And if you do those things, you're always going to walk in a, in a, in a good conscience. And then he adds this idea of the sincere faith. The word in the Greek for sincere is sincera, where, they, where the, the translation is without wax, without wax. So you'd get this beautiful marble bust of, a, of an image and the person would work, you know, thousands of hours on, on it and, and just getting down to the final touches and makes a hit with the, the hammer and the chisel, just touching off a little bit to polish it and all of a sudden the, the nose falls off because there was a, a weakness in the marble and it just falls off. 
Well, what they would do is they would take wax and they'd put it back on and then they'd put some, some uh, marble powder on it and it would look just fine and nobody could tell it was there. And then you'd take this marble bust home and you'd put it in your window and then the sun would come in in the noonday and the wax would get soft and the nose would slide off the face and you'd realize you got ripped off. And so what, what these chiselers would do is they would, they would just simply say uh, in their store, Sincera, without wax, all of these, these creations are without wax. They're, they're the real deal. And so that's what, what uh, Paul is charging Timothy with, a sincere faith, a sincere faith. And the idea is to have faith in the Lord, to have a, an undefiled conscience, a good conscience, a sincere faith. These are so important to, uh, to us as believers. And God cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But then he points out here, he says, this is the charge that you love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then he, he juxtapositions it with, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside. And what do they turn aside to when they no longer have love, when they no longer have a good conscience or a sincere faith? They turn to idle talk. Isn't it amazing when we are backslidden and in sin, how we just love to roast people and talk about them? We know we're not walking with the Lord. We're gossipers, we're slanders, we're backbiters, we're snippy. We don't have nice things to say in the absence of others. And we just, we just tear them apart. And this is idle talk. Talking about things that are just worthless. You, you talk about things that have nothing to do with, with the Lord. You spend your days just indulging in this idle talk. And he says they've, they've strayed, they've turned aside, and they've turned to idle talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law. And this is what's so fascinating. When we walk away from the Lord and we're no longer engaging with people and loving them and stepping into their world and having compassion and, and walking through their struggles with them, when we're no longer in that place, this is what we love to spend our time doing. We love, we love to nitpick the law and go through every detail of how we are right. And we love to study scriptures just for the sake of studying scriptures. We love to study eschatology and go through all kinds of things. But we'll walk by somebody who's struggling or needs a, a helping hand or the opportunity to come to a church and serve one another. And we just engage day in and day out mounds of books and, and eschatological writings to, to somehow prove ourselves to be worthy of this Christian walk when in reality there's no love, there's no good conscience, there's, there's, there's no sincerity in all of that and the faith is absent it's just it's a, a work of futility okay so you're knowledgeable in the scriptures so so you you have an eschatological background and you can go through all kinds of prophetic aspects but you you never spend time serving in any capacity in the church or loving anybody or engaging in fellowship and that's what he's saying these are folks that have turned aside they desire to be teachers of the law and they go on and on in their dissertations about the law but, it, but Paul says, Timothy, they, they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. I, I've heard people like that. And, and you go and you want to talk with them and they, they bring up writings and they go through you know, deep writings of theology and, and they start to speak. And, and you're looking at them and you're, you're saying, I, 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 I understand the English you're speaking. I, I know the, the definition of every word you've used. But I have to tell you, I have no idea what you just said. It means it makes no sense, and 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 you're you're pondering their 
they're pontifications and you're struggling over what they're trying to communicate and there's nothing there of anything of substance because it's not mixed with any love or any practical application whatsoever. And so this is, this is the picture of what Timothy is saying. You're going to run into people like that, Timothy. Understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Paul says to Timothy in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. This is what Paul does. He says, Timothy, you're in the middle of Ephesus. You're in the middle of Ephesus. You're in the hotbed of culture. And you have a responsibility. You need to step into the middle of that culture and you need to call it out. You need to let them know that the things that they are doing need to stop. You need to stand firm on that. Every one of the things that Paul has listed is a sociological barometer. It's what you deal with in society. And we're called to stand firm. And he's speaking of the law. Who exercises the law? Civil government. And he's saying, this is what needs to happen in a culture, Timothy. And I charge you with this. I charge you to step into the middle of it. Now, when you look at this and you see this charge, I want to point out one thing. We get down to the bottom of the passage, verses 18 and 20. He repeats it and he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage good warfare. That's what it is. It's warfare. You step into the middle of that and you are in war. You tell somebody they're wrong. You call out a sin. You call out um, a sociological misstep in, in, that, that is uh, in, in contrary to God's law and natural law. People are going to fight you. And when he uses this idea of warfare, it's fascinating because Every Roman, especially in 67 AD, knew what was taking place in the Colosseum and every arena around Rome, especially in Ephesus. And I've been to Ephesus and I've been into that arena. They loved blood sport. They were in the midst of MMA. And that is a millennial hot spot. They love MMA boxing. They love to see people pound the daylights out of every, everything. And in this boxing scene, I, I wrote this down in ancient Rome, was pugilatus. Uh, from which we derive the modern word pugilism, was even more ruthless in the version of the sport that the Greeks participated in. Leather straps around the hands could be utilized, but were often replaced with what were effectively leather knuckle dusters known as castus, and they had metal inserted in them to cause maximum damage to an opponent. They would cut their faces, they would beat them to a bloody pulp, and every fight ended in the death of the other boxer. And really what Paul's saying to Timothy is, this is warfare. And they're going to fight dirty. And you stand upon the truth and you speak into that culture and you address these social ills. He says, the law is for the lawless and insubordinate. Righteous judgments are important to a culture and a society. He says, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. This idea is uh, all human decency is gone in the actions that they participate in. And you know, you want to talk about passion as a millennial, a young person, Timothy's age? You want to talk about passion? You want to go build wells in some foreign country? You want to go do these things? You talk about, you know, uh, slavery and, 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 and prostitution and all the things, the, the, the sex slave industry. 
Well, that's a passion for millennials to stop it. Well, this is exactly what he's saying. He's saying all human decency is gone in these folks. They're sinners for the unholy and profane. They're murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. They attack their own families. There's no respect. The honor your mother and father will go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. They despise their mothers and mother and fathers. They're manslayers. This idea of fornicators and sodomites. Fornication is this idea of sex out of marriage. And, and they're fornicators. They participate in, in prostitution. Sodomites, uh, the, the two words in the Greek are a, 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 a man and a bed, which is the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 6 for homosexuality. But the word that jumps out to me is kidnappers. It means to, to profit in the trade of human beings. Slavery. Isn't it fascinating that the young generation wants to stop all of this? This is a cultural aspect for liars and for perjurers. Well, let's also check our own heart and go to that place. If there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which, uh, which was committed to my trust, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to change the culture in Ephesus. I want you to stand firm. I want you to call folks out and I want you to stand for good laws. And I want you to infuse every aspect of that culture with the presence of Christ. Isn't that a powerful charge to Timothy? fascinating. Wouldn't that be amazing if our young people today had that same charge upon their lives and they were as committed to it and they looked at it as warfare? We'll engage in something if it's convenient. It's kind of cool to go out and look for Joseph Coney in Africa. But all the while you're engaged in pornography and, and the guy who started the process is, loses his mind and is running naked in the streets. But it's so hip because you can hold banners up and do all these things, but you're not engaging in it. You're not fighting on the front lines with it. You want to stop it? There's thousands of ways to stop it, especially in our community. It's not that difficult. All you have to do is have a backbone. Go engage in it. Go do something. Stand for unjust laws. Talk about perjury. Talk about this idea of honoring your mother and father. Why, why not in a culture that the, 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 the young generation would declare to one another, honor your mother and father? I remember Daniel was going through a struggle and Molly set him aside and said, you know, the one thing that you'll never go wrong on in life is to honor your mom and dad. We watched a change in Daniel that Michelle and I couldn't have brought about. And he's, he's not a, you know, rebellious young man. He's just going through a stage. But to have a, almost a contemporary, a, an older sister, but to have her turn to him and say, Daniel, I'm just telling you, it worked for me, it'll work for you. And to, to model that for that generation, <clears throat> it's powerful. And it's so necessary. And yet, we'd rather do things that are convenient and easy as opposed to address these ills in culture. Every one of these things. Fornication. Calling families to stay together and to honor one another. Pure heart. Stop what you're looking at and watching. If it's causing you to stray from a sincere faith and having love from a pure heart and honoring one another and protecting your family, avoid it, abandon it, get away from it. This is how you change a culture. Your first responsibility is to go before the Lord and have him cleanse your heart. And you know where you get a good conscience? Is making it right with the Lord. His kindness leads you to repentance. We all struggle, but the beauty of it is the older you get, uh, you may sin less, but the reality is the more you, you repent and the quicker you are to repent, the older you get. You just realize, I need to keep a short account. This is going nowhere. I've been down this road and it is a dead end and the return on investment just isn't worth it. You start to get wiser in that regard.
You think about folks that struggled in life, you know. Uh, David did. He had to cleanse his conscience before the Lord. That's where some of the powerful Psalms came from. But then you got guys like Joseph and Daniel. Their lives were exemplary. They had powerful testimonies where they walked with the Lord. But we look at this idea of having a good conscience before the Lord. Remember what God said to Abraham. He made him a promise, and then the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and goes on to say, and God accredited it to him as righteousness long before the Ten Commandments had ever been given. Then Moses gives the Ten Commandments, and what happens right after the law is given? They break it. But more than that, right after the law is given, they set up the, the sacrificial system that an, a, a sinless animal has to die in the, in the place of the sinner. Blood must be shed for the remission of sin. And the law doesn't save. The law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. And what that does is it causes us to look at that blood and realize this is wrong. And it's, it's defiling. And it's an abomination before God. And when I do this, some, somebody dies. Somebody is hurt. And I need to get right with my, my Lord, my God. And a man who's right with God, and that's why there's two stations of the cross. You have the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical is if you're right with God, you're going to be right with man. You're going to be a good citizen. You're going to tell the truth. You're not going to to, uh, be guilty of any of these things, unholy and profane murderers. You're not going to be a manslayer, a fornicator, a sodomite, a liar, a perjurer. You're not going to do things contrary to sound doctrine, which is what the scriptures speak of. Where do we get our, our Western law? The word of God. It's a foundation. You have to have absolutes. If you remove absolutes from a culture, that culture goes from having this license and liberty and this delicate balance to then veering off towards authoritarian forms of government, whether they be fascism, socialism, communism. And we, we look to one man, and, and all of a sudden we're looking to that person to be the lawgiver and hoping that they're going to somehow save us. Well, that's, that's a lost cause. The people blame Christianity for the Salem witch trials and the Inquisition and... And they say, look at all these people that died in the Crusades. First of all, the Crusades were a response to an invasion into Europe. The Inquisition was awful. 100,000 people died in that. Salem witch trials, it was awful, but a handful of people died there. And the people who stopped it were pastors who applied the scriptures appropriately. But how many people have died in authoritarian forms of government, whether it be fascism, communism, or socialism? Well, let's just go with communism and fascism. Billions. 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 I'm just stunned by the the short memory we have that we'd be so quick to look to a socialist as a candidate and and seriously consider a socialist as though a larger man-centered government is going to give us some sort of justice. Really? Government is awful. It's a necessary evil. And, and when you take away the freedoms of man, and the greater the government, the smaller the citizen. And that's the problem. I, I read a book, and Georgette's with us. It's called By Dawn Will Be Free. Um, Hungarian, where are you, Georgette? Stand up, would you? She, she speaks four languages. And, and she, oh, well, used to then. You speak better than I do, I imagine, in those four languages. But the beauty of it is, in 1943, she watched her country fall. And then it became communist. And her and her brother and her parents 
had this joy to come to one of the greatest spots on the face of the earth, the United States of America. Amen? Yeah. So she understands, thank you, Georgette, she understands what it's like to be in oppression and to understand license and liberty. Where did this experiment in America come from? It came from men and women who stepped into the middle of the fray in nations like Rome and spoke into the culture and said, slavery is wrong. Who abolished slavery in the British Empire? Who started it? William Wilberforce. What was he? A Christian. How about that? Who ended slavery in the United States of America? Abolitionists. We, we find them to be Christians. Who did child labor laws? Christians. Civil rights movement? Christians. The women's suffrage? Christians. They address these ills and change the culture. But we don't do that anymore. You know why? Because <laughs> we don't see it as warfare. We don't want to get bloodied or be bloodied. We don't want to confront. We just want to go like a twig on the banks of a mighty river and just go with the flow. And we won't confront these folks. And Paul is charging Timothy, charging him, you must do this. You see it, call it out. Wow. That's intense. The passage goes on in verse 12. Take a look with me if you would. In verse 12... It says, um, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And look what he says here of whom I am chief. I am the chief sinner of the world. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. This is the second to the last writing he would ever pen. He began his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner. And now we get to the second to the last writing he would ever write. He's just less than a year from his death, if that. And he says, I'm a chief of sinners. So the reality is, He understood something. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I'll just point out to you this. Rob McCoy, who stands before you today, would never have a friendship with any of you. I wouldn't serve you or or be concerned with you. I was raised one of the most selfish human beings on the face of the earth. And I know who Rob McCoy is. Without Christ, Rob McCoy is capable of all of that. My family has seen the absence of Christ at periods of time. And they know what I'm capable of, as are all of you. And when we have love given to us by Christ, and he counts us worthy, and he counts us faithful, and he puts us in the ministry, he looks at folks and he says, I'm putting you in the ministry. And Paul says, but Lord, I'm the chief of sinners. That's exactly why I can use you, Paul. Because you know who you are apart from me. And as long as you know that, you don't want any of you and you want all of me. It's kind of like you get to the end of a day and it's been a really good day and you go, God, we did really good today, didn't we? And God says, I did well. (laughs) I'm just glad you stayed out of the way. 
And Paul points out, it's the grace of our Lord exceedingly abundantly with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's his kindness that has led us to repentance. It's his exceeding grace that has blessed us. This faithful is saying and worthy of all acceptance, verse 5, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The first way that you become effective in the ministry, and he says to Timothy, you're not effective because you're eloquent. You're not effective because you know how to lead people and make friends and influence people. You're effective because you understand that you're a sinner saved by grace. Don't ever forget that. The only reason you stand there is by God's grace. And Rob, this pulpit can be taken from you and and everything you hold dear can be taken from you. I've given it to you because I've counted you worthy. And I've counted you worthy because you understand something very important. Without me, you're nothing. And the minute we start believing our own press, we're in trouble. You know what's fascinating when we start believing our own press? We start to pontificate about things we have no clue about. We try to impress people with long sentences and big words. We get in a lot of trouble. Verse 16, he says, However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Oh, man. Paul's saying, I was raised with a respect for God. I was raised understanding the, every aspect of the law. I learned the language of God. I learned Hebrew. I spoke many languages. I had what would be considered multiple doctorates. I trained under Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, excuse me. He, he was, he, he was the, the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was set to be the, the, the chief priest of, of the entirety of the temple. I knew everything there was to know about God and I knew the law. And when I speak of folks that go on and on understanding neither what they say nor things which they affirm, that was me. Because in all of that understanding of what God had entrusted to me, and the Bible says man is without excuse because all creation speaks of the glory of God, we know we have a conscience. We have a conscience. And we can dismiss it and play all kinds of games with it and try to have a short memory and, and, and be mean and rude to people. But ultimately, when we're alone and the music's off, we know that we're accountable to God. It's in that moment, it's in that moment where we start to realize, like Paul did, Lord, I knew everything about you and I thought I was doing your work, but all I was doing is persecuting and killing Christians. He began orders from the temple to go and seek out Christians and kill them. And that's when he was on the road to Damascus and he was knocked off his high horse, was blinded. And there in humility, he repented. And he realized, God, you have been so patient with me. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's patience and long-suffering. Wanting that none would perish, but all would be saved. And he pursued Paul, never gave up on him. It's appointed once for a man to die. God knows the day of your death. I was talking to a brother who was just told he's got three months to live. He's had some struggles in his life. And we talked with each other and I said, you know what? It's kind of fascinating. And he's my age. He says, it's kind of fascinating. Written on, on this vessel is a very clear expiration date. And you have to consume it before its expiration date. He says, it's kind of interesting to be given a termination date and to know you have time to make things right. Um, my heart goes out to the Moon family. They're, Paul Moon is in our Boy Scout troop and his, his brother Bernard. 
uh, died in that explosion. He didn't go out that day expecting to die. That family didn't expect their son to go. We have another member of our congregation, Sue Hartman. Her 22-year-old son died in a car accident two days ago in Santa Clarita, instantly killed. And, And we look at these things and we say, Lord, I want to have love from a pure heart. Lord, I I want a sincere faith and a good conscience. I want to serve you. And you come to this place when you realize, God, all I can offer you is a sinner saved by grace. And every day I wake up, I yield. And it's not you and me, it's just you. I die and then I rely. And he says this to Timothy. He says, I was the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I realize that. That's why I cling to the cross. If Paul the Apostle is let loose and, and you even give that old man a cracker, he'll rise from the grave and go do destruction. And that's why I wrote, I am crucified with Christ. We wake up every day to die that Christ might live. He says in verse 16, we'll close with 16 and 17 to 9, he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might be might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, we come to a place where we don't want to confront culture because it's too demanding. But the charge to Timothy at the end of this passage was to wage war. Wage war. I think to wage war is to confront evil. And, and I, I don't think there's any easy way to do that. Now, you confront evil and you do it in love, right? But you confront it nevertheless. I think oftentimes our struggle is we like to use the law in defense of our sin while we point out everyone else's. That's not love. Someone comes in struggling and each man is given a measure of faith and to just walk through the doors of a church is overwhelming and they sit down. And you can tell by the way they talk or the way they dress or whatever it is, you, you have judged them. And, and you have decided that their sin is not acceptable in this church. Their type of music is not acceptable. Their type of dress is not acceptable. I remember one time a gal came in and she had uh, an outfit on that looked like she spray painted it on. Low cut and high cut and very little there and nothing left to the imagination. A woman came over, sat down next to her, said, you can't wear that in church. She left. I've never seen her since. I found that out later. I would have been furious. I don't care if you come in buck naked. We'll offer you a blanket if you're cold. (laughs) And obviously there would be struggles, and that's hyperbole in a sense. But this is a place where if we're truly dead to ourselves we're going to do our best to reach anyone who comes in. We're going to do everything we can to reach them. You know, I know of two transgender folks that attend our service every Sunday. Every Sunday. 
I won't say what they transgender to, but I'll tell you this much. I've seen the opposite sex watch them and, and kind of, you know, that eye. And I'm thinking to myself, if you only knew. <laughs> and I'm looking at one person lust where their sin is acceptable, but when they find out, they're going to be furious and consider them wretched. Fascinating to me, the dynamics. I know folks involved in the porn industry that are in the church, and they're here. And they've come and they've told me, I sound like there's not a place I'd rather have you than here. I don't profess a faith in Christ. I said, I understand that. But if you're willing to sit down and listen, I'm willing to share. But am I going to hold back in discussing some of these things? No. But the Bible says, speak the truth in love. You've got to come up with ideas on how to share that. I remember one time speaking to a group of log cabin Republicans. Uh, this is the homosexual arm of the Republican Party. And they asked me to come and be their speaker. And I came. I, I began to speak to them. Some people were offended I went. And uh, I was a candidate running for office. And I addressed them. And I said, I imagine coming out in the gay community was easier than coming out conservative in the gay community. And they all applauded. Yes. And I said, you strike me as Arab Christians. They looked at me. What do you mean? Because they just had a man speak on foreign policy and the, the Muslim issue around the world and in the Arab world. And I said, well, Arab Christians are distrusted by Christians, Western Christians, and they're distrusted by Jews. And yet they still serve the Lord, but they, they have no protections. We're about ready to go to Israel. I leave on Saturday. We're going to go into the Palestinian Authority. There's one church there that's not a, uh, a, a preterist church. And they are persecuted every day because they believe in, in literal Israel being in prophecy. And, and I, I think of that, and I said that to these, these homosexuals, and they said, why are we like Arab Christians? And I said, you're, you're despised in the conservative movement. Conservatives don't trust you. The homosexual community doesn't trust you. And I said, you know, I would share this with you. Your organization should be the most pro-life organization in the Republican Party. What do you mean? Why should we be the most pro-life organization in the Republican Party? I said, because if there is a gay gene, and you can diagnose that, do you think that that fetus, that baby's going to live? You can hear an audible groan. Be all things to all men that you might win some. Speak the truth in love. Find connection points to speak these truths into their life. And you can't do that unless you've been invited to come. I could have walked in there and go, you're a bunch of wretched homosexuals. What, you're sodomites. You, the Old Testament speaks of that. And Romans 1. And Romans 1 goes through every sin imaginable. And, and just the deviation of the guy lusting after, or the girl lusting after the transgender, everybody's warped. The idea is to call folks on it. And when you profess Christ and yet you have not love, you're a clanging cymbal and a sounding brass. That doesn't mean accept the sin. That means speak to it kindly and address it with love and serve them. I got their endorsement. A lot of folks wondered how I got the log cabin endorsement. I showed up. They were shocked. What is a pastor doing here? Loving you. 
I don't agree with what you believe. Even when I, I meet with, with my, my Mormon friends, I tell them we have disagreements in the faith. But the truth of the matter is, I love you. I enjoy being in your presence. You're good people. And we have those conversations. And, and they don't come up that often, but when they do, they're profound. And it's usually on a two-hour drive back from Claremont Harvey Mudd College <laughs> as I'm sitting in the back seat. And you know how it's easy not to speak the truth in love? is to be offended by the things that they're sharing with you. And here's a question for you. They're sharing things that are wrong. And I know that that's not the entry point. It takes time to find that entry point. That's done with listening. And then you find that segue where you know the Holy Spirit says, now. And you find that segue. And you share with them. But if you want to be offended, I have a question for you. If the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Let me ask you this. Can you offend a dead man? No. And usually, you know why you're offended? Because you don't want to examine your life. You'd rather attack theirs. Usually when you have a patience, you can wait in those moments and then speak the truth in love and jump in there. You want to get done all right away. Well, that's just, you're you're marking off a, you know, doing a check on your belt. So, Paul's charge to Timothy was a charge. And he laid out what he was to confront. And it is going to be warfare. And there are going to be times where folks are going to be offended. There's going to be times where you're not going to be able to make friends. And I've had times where folks in the homosexual community are upset with me. I still don't forget their birthdays. I still don't forget to call them. I still don't forget to tell them I love them. My sister's been offended with me more times than I can count. But I still endeavor with her. I still pursue her. Recently, as she, by her own admission, professed a faith in Christ. She said it happened over in Israel. She's still living with her life partner. She's still a professing homosexual. But something has started inside her. She's starting to move towards the scriptures. She's starting to pray. She's reading. And what does the Bible say? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. To every man is given a measure of faith. Is there anyone in the room that became a Christian and continued in a habitual sin? Could you raise your hand? Well, your pastor did. Anyone else? Is there anyone in the room that professed Christ, renounced to sin, and returned to it? Could you raise your hand? Is there anyone who's been totally delivered from every sin you've ever had? Maybe that's why I'm shocked that everyone's not raising their hand. We're a work in progress. And you know who's a better convictor of sin than you? The Holy Spirit. Now, if you're in habitual sin where you're hurting someone, I'm going to be on you like white on rice. If you're abusing the congregation and and attacking the sheep, you'll hear from me. I'm a shepherd. I look for wolves. And every sheep is a potential wolf and every wolf is a potential sheep. And And you learn that by listening and observing and being patient. And God works through those. So this is Paul's charge to Timothy. And this is what he's called us to do as well.